Yawn at the paw prince, you jaundiced onions. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. I hope you had a charming week. Let's begin this week's podcast with a piece of prose that was submitted by Hollywood actor Colin Farrell. This is the second piece of prose that Colin has sent in. It's more of a meditation than a piece of prose, but he delivered this to me by folding it up into a paper airplane and aiming it at my iris. So this poem is called When I Use the Car Wash by Colin Farrell. When I use the car wash, I don't wear any trousers or underpants. I roll down the sunroof. I place both my legs up on the two front seats and my hands are on the dashboard. It's a yoga pose that I learned on YouTube called the Downward Dog. Don't call me a fucking dog because I'm Colin Farrell. So I'm nude from the waist down with my hands on the dashboard and my langer dangling like an air freshener. Except mine doesn't smell like a pine tree, what? Then I stick my arse out of the sunroof so that the big spinning giant brushes from the car wash tickle my anogenital region. I learned that word from the back of a can of deodorant, the bit that tells you where you shouldn't spray it. Then before the car wash is finished, I get back into the front seat as if nothing has happened. The inside of my car is usually dripping wet because the sunroof was open, but I don't care because I'm Colin Farrell and I can buy a new car. The end. Thank you Colin Farrell for that piece of prose. I hope it's a true story and not just a lampoon or a jest. I was wondering actually when I was reading it. Was Colin Farrell where he mentioned there the anogenital region? Because the only place that I know that word from as well is like the back of a can of deodorant, you know? You'd be reading the back of a can of deodorant and it's like, do not spray this on the anogenital region. Or the bars, as we call it in Limerick. Or Stinker's Bridge, it's so <laughs> sometimes known in Cork. <laughs> but I was thinking, as Colin Farrell was submitting that poem to me, I wonder was he looking at that, that the recent photograph of President Trump's toilet in Mar-a-Lago where he had all the fucking Trump the fucking silly bastard Donald Trump's toilet in Mar-a-Lago with seven foot tall boxes of piles of classified documents and when I was looking at that like when I was looking at boxes and piles and documents of classified information about CIA black sites and torture programs in Guantanamo Bay I couldn't help but imagine Donald Trump sitting on the toilet reading those things that this is like his toilet reading because before mobile phones like no one had piles of classified documents in their toilet but before mobile phones you had to read the back of a can of deodorant or the back of a can of shampoo and you became acquainted with words like isobutane or propylene carbonate geranial an anogenital region and then it would have like the name of the industrial estate in Birmingham where your can of imperial leather deodorant was was made and a little phone number and I used to think who needs this looking at the back of a can of deodorant going why is there a phone number there what what piece of information could I possibly need where I need to ring up the industrial estate in Birmingham where my fucking deodorant is made And then, of course, I did once, when I was about 12. 
And then they answered and I got nervous and hung up. But a month later, my dad was really upset because he was looking at the phone bill and someone had someone had rang the UK, which was quite expensive back then. It was about 30p a minute to ring the UK. And then he came to me and said, were you ringing the UK? Why were you ringing the UK? And I couldn't tell him. I just rang the number that I saw on the back of a can of deodorant. So I lied to him and said, I was trying to I was trying to ring the Natural History Museum in London to find out about dinosaur bones. And then he felt guilty and left me alone. So if you're a new listener to this podcast, I recommend going back and listening to some earlier episodes to familiarise yourself with the lore of this podcast. So yeah, Donald Trump has been arrested under the Espionage Act and is being charged with crimes that could carry up to 20 years in prison. And he can still run for president and he can still be elected for president because what's happening is so mad and unthinkable that no one bothered to create legislation to stop it from happening. So if you were to ask me, do you think Donald Trump could actually get charged, sentenced to prison, and then also re-elected as president, and then conduct his presidency while being in jail? I'd say, yeah, I can see that happening. In the current television series that is reality, that would make a great second season. And since 2016, no, no, since 2015, when David Cameron had sex with a pig's mouth. Since then, collectively, we all seem to be steering reality towards its most entertaining conclusion, regardless of the impact on human life or the environment. So yeah, I can see that happening. But I couldn't get over the photograph of Donald Trump's toilet with the files, the boxes of files piled up. His toilet looked like the toilet you'd have in a nice hotel in Gart. Like if a, if a solicitor had a wedding, a solicitor's wedding in Gart, the hotel that he would choose, that's what Trump's toilet looks like. And just regarding how bizarre reality has, has become, the two main stories in the news this week. There's a whistleblower in US military intelligence, a high up whistleblower who is saying that the US has recovered alien spacecraft and the public need to know. So on the one hand you're going, wow, this dude, this dude who worked high up in the US military is saying that the US has been hiding UFOs since the 1940s. Fuck me, they must be really good at keeping secrets. They must be really good at hiding classified information. Because how do you keep that a secret for so long? And then the other big news story is the last president has just been arrested because he's been keeping these classified documents in a fucking toilet and there's a photograph of him. And it's like, which one is it, lads? You're able to hide the existence of aliens for 80 years or you keep your classified documents in a toilet? Which one is it? Pick one. So I went to do my weekly shopping this week. And there's something I buy in the frozen section. And when I buy it, I do it in a very hurried, secretive and shameful fashion. Now, I was never aware of this until this week. But there's a product I buy in the frozen food department. And when I reach into the freezer and pick it out and put it into my trolley, it feels a bit like when you buy condoms in the supermarket. You can buy condoms in the supermarket now. But everybody who buys condoms in the supermarket, you go up with your trolley, you plan it out. You don't just nonchalantly fucking browse around the condoms in the supermarket. You plan it, you see them, you grab them, 
and you put them in real quickly and you move along. Like you're not going to hover around the condoms in the supermarket and look at them going, oh, I wonder what gossamer means. And if you are, you pretend you're looking at the Lemsip or the Paracetamol because they keep the Lemsip and the Paracetamol beside the condoms. So you stand in front of the Lemsip and Paracetamol and look at them and then you turn your eye to the left and see what the selection of condoms is like. Then you check around, you grab it and you put it in the trolley. And that can be dangerous because sometimes the boxes of condoms in the supermarket, they're not just stacked freely as itinerant boxes. Sometimes the boxes of condoms are actually in a larger, firm, plastic multi-pack. And if you try and go past quickly with the trolley and pluck one off the shelf, you can actually drag all the condoms down onto the ground and everybody looks so you have, to, you have to look at the condoms from a distance and say, okay, they're untethered and you plan your movement and you make it swift. So the only item in the supermarket that makes us behave that way are the condoms. But this week I realised I behaved that way in the frozen section towards Yorkshire puddings. So I went to the supermarket this week and I was in the frozen section and there were no Yorkshire puddings. And then I said, fuck it. There were no Yorkshire puddings last week either, or the week before that. And I'm asking myself, where are the Yorkshire puddings? Why are there no Yorkshire puddings? I better go and ask somebody where the Yorkshire puddings are. And then I stopped, and this anxiety came up in me. And I was like, I'm not going to ask someone who works in Duns why there's no Yorkshire puddings. In the same way that if I was in the supermarket and there wasn't any condoms... I'm, I'm just not, in no way, in the supermarket, I'm just not going to somebody who works in the supermarket and going, how are you getting on? There's no condoms. Do you have any condoms in the supermarket? Who amongst you is going to do that? Which one of you, honestly, is going to go to Dunn's or Tesco and say, hey buddy, I noticed there's no condoms on the shelf. Do you have any condoms in the supermarket? You're just not going to do it chemist different story in the chemist i noticed there's no condoms on the shelf do you have any behind the counter that i don't know about that that feels pretty okay no condoms in the vending machine of the men's toilet yeah i could see myself going to hotel no i'm not queuing up at hotel reception with a lot of italians and americans around me and going up to the person at the counter and saying there's no condoms in the vending machine in the men's toilet like, I, I I, I was in a supermarket about two months ago and I was looking for a, a, a toenail clippers, one of the big clippers for your toenails, and they didn't have them. And then I thought to myself, fuck it, I really want to clip my toenails. I'm just going to ask, I'm going to ask one of the girls who works here. And I'm going to go up to her and say, excuse me, but I can't find any toenail clippers. Do you know where they are? And then she said... I'm not too sure where they are either. Follow me. So then this girl is leading me all around the the aisles and we're searching for toenail clippers. And then she asks her colleague. Now there's two people with me and it's, it's taken about three minutes at this point. And now they're leading me all around the supermarket searching for toenail clippers. And the whole time I'm just thinking, I wonder if they're envisioning my feet now. I wonder if they are wondering what my toenails are like. I wonder if they're concerned about me, like an old donkey whose hooves are too long. 
And then I just said, look, it's fine. It's fine. And I saw a set of kitchen scissors, large kitchen scissors. And I took them and I said, this is fine. I'll use them. And they're like, no, no, no. We can find the toenail clippers. Don't worry. No, it's grand, grand. I'll, I'll use these kitchen scissors. And I shouldn't have done that because there was no way, there was no way for me to have that interaction without them having a vivid mental vision of me sitting in my kitchen with no shoes on, attacking my feet with a kitchen scissors. There's no way they didn't think that. There's like you're thinking it, you're thinking it right now. And every time I return to that supermarket, I see that girl and she sees me and I know she's thinking there's Mr. Toenails. And that's why we're not going to ask anyone in the supermarket, where are the condoms? I can't find any condoms because I don't, nobody wants the person in the supermarket to ha- then have to imagine you having sex. It's the reason Donald Duck has nephews and not children. Donald Duck has nephews because when he has nephews, you don't have to think of Donald Duck having sex. Well, that's all of us in the supermarket when it comes to condoms. People who go to supermarkets don't have sex. People who go to chemists do have sex. Doesn't make sense, but this is what we seem to have collectively agreed. Also, I'd like to see the statistics of people who purchase condoms in the supermarket and how many of those people use the self-service checkout rather than going to the cashier. The only possible way, if you were in a supermarket and there was no condoms and you had to ask the people there, where are the condoms? If you dressed in head-to-toe military fatigues, military pants and a military jacket then the people might think oh he's these condoms that he's buying are for a survival situation he's going off to the forest for the weekend and he needs a condom so that he can fill it with two litres of water for a survival situation so last week I'm in the frozen section in the supermarket and there's no Yorkshire puddings and there hasn't been Yorkshire puddings in a while and that anxiety came up I'm like, what, what's, what's with this shame here? What's going on here? So I hung around. I hung around thinking about it long enough that I started to get really cold in the frozen food section. And I realised that it was an Irish thing. I really like Yorkshire puddings. If I'm having a roast dinner, I like Yorkshire puddings. Now, Yorkshire puddings are not popular in Ireland. You can only buy one brand. It's Aunt Bessie's. And it's a big blue bag of Yorkshire puddings. And you put them in the oven and they just take five minutes to cook. And I fucking love them. I think they're fantastic. You have them with roast potatoes, roast beef, roast chicken, gravy. And they're so resilient. They soak up the gravy, but they they fight it. There's resistance. They don't want the gravy. They they, They don't just dissolve in it like bread. A Yorkshire pudding puts up a fight with the gravy. And you can soak it in gravy as much as you like, but it still has a crunch and a chew to it. And there's a faint egginess to Yorkshire puddings. And when you bite down, you expect them to collapse and flake like pastry, but they don't. There's a chewy fight in them. And they're like, like when you have your roast dinner, gravy, roast potatoes, roast beef, peas, all incredibly enjoyable, satisfying things that make sense. And then it's like, oh fuck, great, a Yorkshire pudding, I forgot about you, you're a bit different. It's like when you're at a party with friends and then a dog comes in. You don't want to spend all your time with the dog. You don't want to give too much attention to the dog. 
But if you're at a party, drink is flowing, you're talking to everybody, you're having a good time. And then it's like, oh, fuck it, I didn't know you had a dog. Fantastic. And then the dog comes over and you're rubbing his neck while talking to other people. And your friends are like roast beef, peas, gravy, roast spuds. And the dog is the Yorkshire pudding. In the same way that you don't want to go to a party where it's just you and a dog. You don't want to have a roast dinner where it's just a Yorkshire pudding. But it's a wonderful addition to a roast dinner. But in Ireland, it's a little bit too fucking English. If you eat Yorkshire puddings in Ireland, you kind of keep it a little bit of a secret. And if you've ever had Sunday dinner in anyone else's house in Ireland, and they suggest Yorkshire puddings, this little 800-year-old suspicion comes up. You don't, like, just accept it. You kind of think, did, did your dad work in England for a while or something? I understand that Yorkshire puddings are delicious, but, like, like why? Who taught you that? Who showed you that? Who taught you how to who taught you that Yorkshire puddings were a thing to be eaten at Sunday dinner? And I had a friend growing up, and I went to his house for Sunday dinner, and they brought out the Yorkshire puddings, and that's how I found out his grandparents were English. He had English grandparents, and that's why there were Yorkshire puddings in his house. Like if you go to a carvery and you get Sunday dinner at a carvery and there's Yorkshire puddings, it feels the same as getting a pint in a Weatherspoons in Ireland. Nobody in Ireland drinks in a Weatherspoons with a fully clear conscience. Now there's the legitimate argument. They're this huge big chain. They put small publicans out of business. The dude who runs them was all pro-Brexit. There's that legitimate side of it. But in Ireland, when someone, when someone goes to a Weatherspoons because their drinks are really cheap, Something deeper comes up and that feeling is, it's what we call in Ireland, taking the soup. During the Irish famine of the 1840s, when people were starving, these Protestant organisations went around the place with free soup to Catholics and said, I know you're starving, but if you, we'll give you free soup if you become a Protestant. And this exists within us culturally as this feeling of being a traitor. So when you're drinking a Weatherspoons in Ireland, this little hum of taking the soup comes up. You're like, I know these pints are really cheap, but at what cost? And the same thing happens with Yorkshire puddings. Now with the Weatherspoons thing, like I said, there's actually a legitimate argument there. But with Yorkshire puddings, that's completely irrational. Completely irrational. I wanted to investigate this feeling within myself. Why, why was I in Dunn's? embarrassed about going to someone who works there and says where are the Yorkshire puddings I haven't seen them in two weeks where are they why do I feel like I'm asking for condoms it's like I was waiting to be judged I think part of it is simply the name Yorkshire puddings aren't like oh la di da how fancy it's not that it's the name just sounds really really English like Yorkshire sounds really, the word Shire is in there, so it sounds mad English to us. And then pudding is also quite an English sounding word. So they sound quite English. The other thing too, and I noticed this when I had them on my plate, because I put, I tested this out. I felt anxious about the presence of my Yorkshire pudding and its proximity to 
the lovely bright green peas that I had on the plate, I noticed that when I would situate Yorkshire puddings on my Sunday roast, I'd actually be keeping them far away from the peas. Now this wasn't a conscious process, but when I interrogated it, I think the the greenness of the peas represented Ireland. Then the other thing that comes up as a source of guilt is Yorkshire puddings are, are they're carbohydrates. It's bread, it's carbohydrates. But the carbohydrates on my Irish roast dinner are spuds, they're potatoes. And when you eat a Sunday dinner, which is, it's a lavish celebratory dinner that you have on a Sunday, and your potatoes are present, and you're Irish, and it's in Ireland, you do feel a little bit proud of the potato. You feel a bit, Jesus Christ, millions of people died because this crop failed as a result of British policy. And it reduced our population by half. And isn't it lovely today to sit down for a Sunday dinner and to eat this potato? And then you bring the Yorkshire pudding in. And now it's a competing carbohydrate. And it feels like I'm cheating on the potato with a Yorkshire pudding. This very English synthetic potato. This changeling potato. I know all of this is fucking nuts. But I'm trying to unravel and interrogate the unconscious processes of my culinary experience. And you know what I'm talking about. If you're having a Sunday dinner in Ireland, the thought of introducing Yorkshire puddings, it just, it feels a bit, is this okay? Is this allowed? And to contrast that with, let's say cranberry sauce, that's an American thing. We in Ireland do not have cranberry sauce with turkey dinners or Christmas dinners. The Simpsons brought that in, in the early 90s. We all know that episode where Bart has a can of cranberry sauce and he pours it out and it's gelatinized, and that's stuck in all of our heads and all of us went, that looks fucking weird. I want to try it. So most Irish households, if they're having a Christmas dinner, most Irish households now will have cranberry sauce there for whoever wants to try it. And some people will even do it for a Sunday dinner if they're having chicken. They just get cranberry sauce. And cranberry sauce feels like a fun, quirky novelty. It's like, ah, those mad yanks, they love sugar, don't they? It's like they're having jam with their dinner. Do you want some? Yeah, fuck it, I'll try it. Oh, that's quite nice. But Yorkshire pudding? There's a darker resistance at play, and it's colonial. And it shouldn't be, because it's not like mad, posh food. It's not like eaten mess. Eaten mess. Have you ever had eaten mess? It's fucking unbelievable. It is incredible. It's delicious. I've never had it in Ireland. I've gotten it over in England in Marks and Spencer. Eaton Mess is a dessert that was made in that really, really posh private English school, Eaton, where all the prime ministers come from. And it's meringue, fresh strawberries, fresh cream and strawberry syrup, just like cracked up in a mess in a bowl. And it's astounding. Nobody in Ireland is serving eaten mess to anybody. You might as well just attend the coronation. You might as well solemnly jettison a marmalade sandwich at the dead queen's gate. Like, the only way in Ireland you'd eat eaten mess is if we give it our own name. You'd have to call it a, a strawberry headbutt. And if you think I'm gone mad about this shit, listen to the podcast I did about the history of the, the Irish summer salad. I went deep into the history of the Irish summer salad. You know the one that you get in a hot day 
where it's a boiled egg, a bit of cheese, a bit of cucumber, a bit of ham. The Irish summer salad. I went into that history in depth. That used to be called an English garden salad. And it was served in the big houses of Ireland. The colonising houses of Ireland. It was what English landlords ate in Ireland. While everyone fucking starved. And then Irish servants who worked in the big house would reconstruct it from scraps from the English table. It developed. We copied it and made it our own. And that's the Irish summer salad. We don't even have a name for it. It's just... The thing your ma makes when she says it's too hot to turn on an oven. But no one's calling it an English garden salad. But with Yorkshire puddings, I don't think it's fair for us to attach an unconscious dark colonial threat to it. Because Yorkshire pudding, it's a delicious working class food from the north of England. Sunday roasts became a thing in the Industrial Revolution amongst people in the north of England. People who suddenly found themselves getting work in coal mines or factories. They were still poor, but they had enough money to have a nice dinner on a Sunday. And it came about as a result of the length of Protestant sermons on Sundays in the north of England. So people who would have been working in a mine, working in a factory, they'd go to Sunday service on a Sunday morning and they'd put roast beef, potatoes, vegetables into their coal oven they'd go to church and the length of Protestant Sunday Mass was how long it took for that food to cook in the oven so then they'd all come home from church and eat their dinner that cooked in the oven but Yorkshire pudding was made because these people couldn't really afford enough beef to satisfy the entire family so they made these puffed pastries out of wheat flour eggs and lard and they made the puddings when they came home from church and the oven was mad hot and just these huge Yorkshire puddings would bloom in the oven because it was wheat flour it had all this gluten so that's why it's so chewy and the people of Yorkshire made this because they didn't have enough meat and this was a way to fill themselves up with something delicious and I've only had a real actual Yorkshire pudding once I was over in London and I had Sunday dinner in a person's house and their ma made actual real homemade Yorkshire puddings from fucking scratch and they were huge so the ones that I buy the Aunt Bessie's ones the frozen ones that you put in the oven they're not even real Yorkshire puddings but I was in the supermarket freezing cold because I'd been thinking about all of this and then I said fuck it fuck this I like Yorkshire puddings they're delicious they're tasty fuck all this bullshit And I walked up to the person in the supermarket and I said, You haven't had any Yorkshire puddings in two weeks. What's going on? Where are they? And then the person said to me, Supply issues because of Brexit. Aunt Bessie's Yorkshire puddings are made over in Leeds in Yorkshire. And because of Brexit and all the difficulties that that has created in exporting things from Britain and bringing them over here, we've had a a, a huge shortage of products of not just Aunt Bessie's but anything from Birdseye so then I went home disappointed and started thinking about Aunt Bessie and thinking about the, the little cartoon of the woman on the front of the Yorkshire puddings who's making the Yorkshire puddings and thinking to myself oh I wonder if she was a real person at one time 
and I started feeling bad for poor old Aunt Bessie who probably started this Yorkshire pudding business years and years ago. I started feeling really, really sad that the people of Yorkshire can't export their Yorkshire puddings to Ireland. Then I found myself on Aunt Bessie's website. I thought about ringing the industrial estate in Hull where they're made. And then I found out there's no Aunt Bessie, she never existed. She's just a mascot that was invented in the 70s for branding. And Aunt Bessie's Yorkshire puddings, they used to be called Triton, Triton Yorkshire puddings. And they had to change the name. And the reason they had to change the name from Triton Yorkshire puddings to Aunt Bessie's is because Triton reminded everybody of Trident intercontinental ballistic nuclear missiles, which are the British Army's arsenal of nuclear missiles to defend themselves during the Cold War. So Aunt Bessie was invented as a character because whenever anyone was buying the Triton Yorkshire puddings, they were just thinking of nuclear war. So you can't really separate things like military power and colonialism from the food on your plate because it's all a human story. And I've decided what I'm going to do next Sunday because I can't get any Aunt Bessie's Yorkshire puddings. I'm going to make Yorkshire puddings from scratch, but I'm going to decolonize it. I'm going to see if I can make it with potato flour. Not 100% potato flour because the wheat is quite important, but I'm going to incorporate potato flour into it. And hopefully it still puffs up the way a Yorkshire pudding does. And if it's successful, I'm going to call it a Brexit ball sack. Because there is something testicular about Yorkshire puddings. They're like the bollock of the meat and two veg. The outer casing of the testicle, the withery skin, rather than the gonads. And then remember what the person in the supermarket said. That's, they said, we can't import any Aunt Bessie's products. And we've had difficult with all bird's eye products in general. Getting them into Ireland, there's a supply issue. And then I found out that bird's eye actually own Aunt Bessie's. And sure then I started thinking about Captain Birdseye. And I couldn't stop thinking about Captain Birdseye. So I'm going to speak about Captain Birdseye after the ocarina pause. Don't have an ocarina, what do I have? I've got a copy of Angela's Ashes. Angela's Ashes, written by Frank McCourt. People shit on this book. I don't know why. Won a Pulitzer Prize. It's about Limerick. I have it in hard copy because I couldn't get it on, on ebook. It's not available on ebook at all. Got a hard copy of Angela's Ashes. An incredibly well written book. Very well written book. In particular, the bits where Frank McCourt writes in the first person from when he was a child and he writes it from a child's point of view with a child's language. I love that. It reminds me of The Butcher Boy by Pat McCabe. It reminds me a little bit of. Ulysses, there's great storytelling, there's great writing. I like Angela's Ashes, I think it's a great book. So what I'm going to do, and you're going to hear an advert, I'm just going to hit myself into the head with a copy of Angela's Ashes, and you're going to hear an advert for something, okay? A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Thank fuck it's not the hardback. That was the hitting myself into the head with a copy of Angela's Ashes Pause. You would have heard an advert there for something. I don't know what it was. Support for this podcast comes from you, the listener, via the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. This podcast is my full-time job. This is how I earn a living. This is how I pay my rent. The Patreon support allows me the time to fail, the time to fuck up and the time to deliver the best podcast that I can possibly deliver to you each week. If this podcast brings you solace, joy, entertainment, distraction, whatever, just please consider paying me for the work that I put into it. All I'm looking for is the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. That's it. And if you can't afford that, don't worry about it because you can listen for free. Because the person who is paying is paying for you to listen for free. So everybody gets a podcast. I get to earn a living. It's a wonderful model. Patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast also keeps the podcast independent i'm not in the pocket of any advertiser nobody can tell me what to do nobody can say it to me we need more numbers we need you to have more listeners platform a fascist be controversial advertisers don't want to hear i'm going to do a podcast this week about the colonial anxiety i experience around yorkshire puddings unless i'm actually sponsored by aunt bessie's which i'm not because the first thing they'd say to me would be, don't mention that we had to invent Aunt Bessie because people thought that our previous name sounded like nuclear missiles. And don't mention that we have supply issues because of Brexit. But yeah, Patreon keeps this podcast independent and support all independent podcasts that you enjoy. Monetarily or just by word of mouth, just by sharing the podcast online, liking it, leaving reviews. My brand new collection of short stories, Topographia Hibernica, is out in November and you can pre-order it now. If you want the link for the pre-orders, go to my Instagram, Blind by Boat Club, and my pinned story on my profile. That's where you'll get all the links for pre-ordering my book and you can do it internationally. If you're international, like fucking Australia or uh, America, use the Forbidden Planet link. In the UK, you use the Waterstones link, and then in Ireland, Kenny's Bookshop link, or Aeson's, and I think Kenny's Bookshop does international too. Let's plug some live podcasts. On the 26th of August, I am in the Cork Opera House at the Cork Podcast Festival. Come to that gig in the Cork Opera House, and also check out the Cork Podcast Festival in general. And I say that because... Two lads that run that festival, Joe and Ed, are unbelievably sound, brilliant promoters. 
and they do great things for Cork and they, they do great things for entertainment. They're the type of promoters that will put on a gig that they know that they will lose money on just to platform the art. And that's a rare thing and that's why I absolutely love them. On the 28th of August, I'm up in Vicker Street in Dublin. Vicker Street gigs are always unbelievable crack. Come along to that. Then, Birmingham on September the 1st. I'm at the Mosley Folk Festival. Can't wait for that. 9th of September, I am in the Pavilion in Dunleary. Looking forward to Dunleary. I'll probably call into the Weatherspoons. I won't. I'll be gone home to bed. And then in November... On the 18th, I'm in the waterfront up in Belfast. Can't wait for that. And then I've got a UK tour that I haven't announced yet, but there's going to be a UK tour before Christmas. Right, I want to talk about Captain Birdseye. What got me thinking about Captain Birdseye was Aunt Bessie. You know, you think of these mascots with food and you like to think this was a real person. Like Paul Newman with his salad dressings. And after learning that Aunt Bessie was fabricated, made up, because the previous name reminded people of nuclear missiles, and then I found out that Aunt Bessie was owned by Birdseye, I started to think, there's no way Captain Birdseye is a real person. No fucking way. This white-bearded old man who hangs around ships with children and gives them fish, he can't be real, is he? And he's not. Captain Birdseye is an invention. He's a mascot. He was an invention by marketing. He's he's Santa Claus. He's Santa Claus for fish. That's what Captain Birdseye is. They took... Birdseye took the image and feel and branding of Santa Claus and put him on a ship. And that's what Captain Birdseye is. But he's also not. There was a real person called Clarence Birdseye who founded Birdseye. Now, I used to, and this makes sense, because when I was a kid, and Birdseye was, they're a huge fucking brand. They're massive. So you couldn't escape Birdseye as a kid, and you couldn't escape the adverts with Captain Birdseye. But as well, as a child, I didn't like thinking about Birdseyes when I'm trying to envision some delicious fish fingers. I don't want to eat the eye of a bird. I want to eat all other parts of the bird, except its eyeballs. I never want to eat a bird's eye. And that was the thing that got me investigating, really. Because I thought, what a silly name to call a food company. Why would you call a food company something disgusting? There has to be a decent, and there has to be a, a, a good reason behind this. And the reason is, it's a fella by the name of Clarence Birdseye, who really existed. And it's a fascinating fucking rabbit hole. And it's also an example of nominative determinism. There was a fella called Clarence Birdseye. He was American. He was born in 1886. And he was like a biologist and a naturalist in the American frontier. The American frontier is when America was colonised by Europeans, which happened on the East Coast around Boston, New York. The colonizers decided, this is our land, fuck anyone who's here already, we don't consider these people to be real people, we're going to take everything they have, we're going to eradicate them, this is our land. And what the colonizers said was, okay, we've got this area here on the east coast, 
But everything west of this, we know that it's fucking massive, but we don't really know what it is. So go forth into the frontier and quote-unquote discover. Do whatever you want. Discover this huge great land and whatever you find, take it and it's yours. And that's American frontierism. And the ideology of American frontierism, and I speak about it a lot, is it really underpins modern American capitalism. Frontierism is the ideology of the American dream. See, before American frontierism, you had like British colonialism. Now, colonialism is go forth, quote-unquote discover, eradicate everybody and take all their shit, but only if you're rich. And that's British colonialism. Go forth and take whatever the fuck you want, but rich people, only rich people can do that and take what they find. With American frontierism, it was different. With American frontierism, it was more, so long as you're white, go forth and take whatever the fuck you want. We don't care if your parents were peasants in Germany or in the Netherlands or England or Ireland. We don't care. If you're dark poor, this is America. Go forth into the frontier and whatever you find, you can take it and you can call that yours and you can become rich. So that's frontierism. So long as you're white, anybody can have whatever they want if you work hard enough and you can become wealthy. And that underpins the ideology of the American dream and American capitalism. So Clarence Birdseye was one of these frontierists. He was a biologist and a hunter. In 1911, he was hired by the United States Department of Agriculture to go to the area of Montana and the Rocky Mountains, which would have been the wild frontier, undiscovered American land. And what the US wanted to do with Montana was exploit it for two things. Agriculture, so that meant grazing lands, growing crops, and also to take all the, to cut down all the trees for wood to build things. Now the people who lived there were the Salish indigenous American people, otherwise known as the Flathead Indians, but they called themselves the Salish people. And they were being pushed out of the Rocky Mountains by Europeans, in particular Europeans who were there for logging. And something strange happened when Europeans started to exploit the logging industry in the Rocky Mountains they started to develop a a very extreme illness that became known as Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever and this illness it caused an extreme rash and fever and it killed people and even in some people who got an extreme dose of Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever they would turn into they'd look like zombies If they survived the fever, they could be disfigured for the rest of their lives or parts of their body could fall off or they'd get gangrene. This was a really extreme disease that was killing a lot of European people who, particularly in the logging industry around 1911 in Montana and the Rocky Mountains. Now, this disease wasn't very prevalent amongst the indigenous Salish people that were there. It was something that really started to impact Europeans in particular who were involved in logging not necessarily because the indigenous people had an immunity but because 
different attitude towards exploitation of the land. The indigenous people weren't engaging in large-scale industrial logging and going deep, deep into the forest. The Europeans were, and the workers were dying with this horrendous disease. So Clarence Bardsey, as a naturalist, was sent by the US Department of Agriculture to be a frontiersman and to go deep into the area of infection and try and figure out what is causing people to get this disease and to die. What they found was that this disease was being caused by a tick, a specific type of tick that lived on certain animals and bit human beings, specifically the ones that were in the logging industry and that were deep in the forest. So what Bardsey did, and this is why I say nominative determinism, he became a hunter. Even though he was a biologist, he was there in the Rocky Mountains with a gun and traps and killing every single animal he saw so that he could skin their bodies and then collect the ticks on their bodies and study them and give reports back to the US government. And Bardsey's findings as a, as a biologist and a naturalist were, yeah, there's this tick out here and when this tick bites people, it causes this horrendous fever. So what we need to do is, here's a list of animals, basically every fucking animal there. We just need to kill every single animal and then the ticks will disappear and also the agriculture, the sheep and stuff will need to be dipped in a tick bath. Here's what I find interesting about it. Even though this man was a naturalist and a biologist, the reports that he was given back about the Rocky Mountains and Rocky Mountain fever, his report exemplified the specific capitalistic colonialism of the frontierist ideology. Nothing was for the benefit of the natural order. Nothing was for the benefit of the environment or biodiversity. His report basically said, kill everything so that we can best serve the exploitation of the land, the logging industry and agriculture. And that was his mindset. So after Clarence Bardsey was finished in Montana, he went up to North, North East Canada, the area around Newfoundland and Labrador, which is a mad area, very barren, very cold, freezing tundra. I flew over it when I was coming back from Vancouver and I had Wi-Fi on the plane and while I was flying over this barren land, I was just reading about how it's a mad landscape. Clarence Bardsey went up there as a fur trapper and also as a naturalist. But you might be thinking, what the fuck does this have to do with my fish fingers? What does this have to do with Captain Bardsey? This is about 1915, or earlier, about 1912, 1913. And when Clarence Bardsey was in Labrador, this almost near the North Pole, this huge, vast area of Canada where it's very cold... Food was hard to come by because it was so freezing all the time. And the way that people preserved, the way that Europeans preserved food in Newfoundland and Labrador was pretty old school. They were using salt. So if they, ha- if they ca- caught fish and wanted to have a stockpile of fish for the year, they salted their cod and they salted their herring and they preserved it that way. But finding access to fresh food was nearly impossible because it was so cold all the time and frozen food wasn't really a thing then. People had gotten food and frozen it but what Bardsey started to realise was that 
if you freeze a fish, the fish freezes, but then when you thaw it, it just doesn't taste like fresh meat. Blood drips out of it. It's kind of mushy. And he was wondering, why does freezing not work? What's going on here? Why is the best way to preserve fish is to salt it? And why doesn't freezing work? Why is meat disgusting when you freeze it? And he started to think about ice crystals and how ice forms. And what really intrigued him, this is a world where refrigeration doesn't really exist because it's the early 1900s. So when stuff froze, it's because it was really cold outside. And something Clarence Bardsey used to be intrigued about when he was up in Labrador in Newfoundland was, do you ever, do you ever have a beer and you put it in the freezer and you take it out and the beer is freezing cold and you can see into that bottle of beer and you can see that even though this beer, which is sealed, is a liquid and you can see the liquid, the second you open that beer up, it freezes in front of your very eyes. Bard's eye started to realise that himself when he was up in Newfoundland where the temperature might be minus 40. If he left water in a beaker the night before, he'd look into the beaker and see that the water was liquid, but the second he poured it out into his cup it turned to ice and he was intrigued by this and he couldn't understand it. And then he looked at the practices of the indigenous people that lived in that part of Canada, the, the Inuit people. When Inuit people would catch fish out of a hole, so they're ice fishing, and it's minus 40, so that's a level of cold that we can't even understand in Ireland. When the indigenous Inuit, Inuit people would catch a fish, they'd pull the fish out of the water, and literally, the second the fish comes out of the water, it would freeze in the air instantly. It would just instantly freeze in seconds. And Clarence Bardsey saw that Inuit people were able to freeze a fish in the air within a second and they could keep that fish frozen in that state for a year and they eat that a year later and it tastes like it's fresh. It tastes like it just came out of the water. And the way that the Inuit people were using the freezing cold air to freeze their fish, they didn't have this frozen fish meat that was all gloopy and that was full of blood and the way that they were doing it it tasted fresh and amazing and what he started to realize was it was about crystals when you freeze something slowly the crystals that form gradually are large like you'll know this yourself if you get a steak or something and you just fuck it into your own freezer at home when you take it out afterwards it's never the same it's not the same because what happens is it freezes slowly and these large ice crystals form in the meat. And what they do is they actually break apart the meat. So then when you thaw it, it's like it's been digested by the meat and it's mushy and it's not nice. Bard's eye saw the Inuit people freezing things really quickly and this didn't happen. Because the quicker you freeze something, the smaller the crystals that form. So he then left the area of Newfoundland and Labrador and went back to America and it was the 1920s and he couldn't stop thinking about this. He kept looking at how fish was being prepared all around him in America. In the 1910s, you couldn't transport meat. If you caught a cod in the 1910s in America off the coast of Canada, you couldn't catch that cod in Canada 
then bring it to New York a week later and expect it to be fresh. You couldn't catch a piece of meat in Boston and bring it up to New York. Meat, even frozen meat, degraded on the way by the time it got to people's table, so fresh food was an incredibly expensive commodity. And then birds I kept thinking back to, remember when I was up there with the Inuit people and it was minus 40 and their fish would just freeze in the air in two seconds and it tasted fresh a year later. How can I do that? How can I do that here in America? So he went to an ice cream factory and asked for access to their like coldest fucking freezer and he developed the technology of flash freezing. He developed a way to freeze meat and vegetables like peas to freeze them instantly so that crystals didn't form and then to store them as frozen food so that now you could freeze something in two seconds, ship it all the way across the world and you could still eat it a year later. So that's what Clarence Birdseye did and he founded the company Birdseye and they pioneered the industrialization of flash freezing food on site. So now when peas were being picked, the peas were frozen the second they came out of the ground. When fish was being caught in the ocean, the fish was being flash frozen in refrigerators on the trawler. And what this did, it gave the world access to fresh food via flash freezing, which then instantly made it incredibly cheap. So now everybody could get cod, herring, haddock, peas, carrots, whatever the fuck you want, you had it fresh on your table for real cheap because it was being flash frozen. But to take it back to that frontierist American capitalist mindset, this is what led to overfishing, biodiversity collapse. Birds I took indigenous knowledge from the Inuit people, but applied that knowledge to endless frontierist capitalism. And just like when he was in the Rocky Mountains doing those biology reports for the US government in, the 19, in 1911 and basically saying kill everything because this is the best way for agriculture and industry to proceed he also took that mindset with his flash freezing and then you end up with overfishing and species of fish, fish disappearing and land being cleared to grow peas that everybody could afford. So on the one hand Everybody gets access to fresh food, flash frozen, at an affordable price. But the real price there is what's happened to our environment and what's happened to the collapse of species. And that's how we end up with Birdseye. That's what Birdseye is, Clarence Birdseye. And then Captain Birdseye was half based on him, but was a mascot that was invented in the 1930s, I believe to sell Birdseye products, who are a huge corporation, who now own Aunt Bessie's. And just like Aunt Bessie was invented because the original name, Triton, reminded people of Trident ballistic missiles, Captain Birdseye, in the 2000s, they had to change Captain Birdseye. Captain Birdseye was always this older man, like Santa Claus, who used to hang around with a bunch of kids. But in the 2000s, People in Britain in particular began to panic about paedophiles and people just felt 
Captain Bard's eye, he's a little bit like a paedophile. And in 2004, there was this old man who looked like Captain Bard's eye and I think dressed a bit like him, went calling to people's doors asking about what their kids ate in Scotland. Now I think he was someone who actually worked for a food company and he looked like Captain Bard's eye. But the people in this neighbourhood in Scotland became convinced that he was actually a, a sex offender and it led to a little bit of a moral panic. So they changed Captain Birdseye from being this older man with a white beard into being a younger man. And now I think right now Captain Birdseye is a woman. So that there is the, the colonial frontierist history of your fish fingers. I'll be back next week, I don't know what with. Alright, rub a dog, salute a worm, kiss a crow, dog bless. Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh, jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh, let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 